Thank you, Shirley. If I was a good preacher, I would have woven the snow somehow into my sermon. But see, I just had this. I just knew you would do a better job than me, so I just let you tackle that one. But uh, welcome again this morning. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me how we plan our travel and we plan our days and we plan our weeks and our years around hunger and thirst. All right, and I know we live in the culture that we live in, and and not many of us on a very regular basis are actually what we would call hungry or actually truly uh, thirsty except for doing things that we have choice in like exercise or fasting or those kinds of things or at least that's the case with me but I just had conversations this week with friends about uh, in one group it was talking about Lexington Kentucky and oh man if you go to Lexington you've got to eat at this place and everybody had their little spot yeah you got to go to Ramsey's and you got to go here you got to do it and, uh, and then in another conversation, it somehow came up Las Vegas, New Mexico. Uh, and it was like, hey, you got to go to this place, uh, which only like three people in the world know or care about. But still, when you think about you're headed somewhere, you know, we're governed by, oh, man, if I go through Clovis, New Mexico, if I found out y'all were going and you didn't stop at Leal's, I would be upset. You know, I'd say you missed some good enchiladas. You missed some good salsa. Uh, you know, we, we are governed by our hunger and thirst. And it's so beautiful because of that, that God meets us. And, you know, this has never changed since the beginning of human history. We have always known exactly what it's like to be hungry and to be thirsty. And so many places in Scripture and so many places in God's story, we are spoken to on the level of our basic appetites. And it's such a glorious thing about God that he doesn't, address us on some lofty plane that requires a physics degree to understand and relate to, but he speaks to us where we gather at the table and where we say, what are we doing for lunch today? And have you thought about breakfast tomorrow? And have the kids eaten yet? And oh, good grief, you know, they they won't stop eating. They just always have to eat, right? You parents and grandparents, you know what that's like. God does not shame us or attack us because we have strong appetites for food or drink or feasts, or wonderful things. But he invites us to redirect our hunger and our thirst and our energies towards things that will give us happiness and towards things that will bring genuine happiness to the world. You know, sometimes we get it all around, all backwards, and we start thinking of Christianity as a set of rules or things that we have to do, or, oh, I feel these strong things, and that's bad instead of redirecting those strong things. It's like, you know, my six-year-old, her, her new favorite song, uh, after seeing Asleep at the Wheel in concert here in Sweetwater a few years back, her new favorite song is Hot Rod Lincoln. Y'all remember that one, Commander Cody, right? And it just describes this powerful engine. You know, the problem that the Hot Rod Lincoln gets into is not the Hot Rod Lincoln. It's the, it's the person behind the wheel and the direction that they're going. You know, we all have Hot Rod Lincoln hearts inside of us and we desire great and wonderful things and so God is inviting us to direct those energies at something that is laid out in the Beatitudes that Shirley read for us the way to happiness the way to true blessedness the way to being fortunate following these things Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that the Beatitudes are the way that we repent when the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we want to follow Jesus and we want to repent, the way that we do it, it's like the worksheet is the Beatitudes. These blessed statements are where we are. 
So today we're going to look at two Beatitudes in the middle. We kind of broke them up into three and then two, and then we'll finish out next week. And these two in the middle really speak to human volition. They speak to our will. They speak to our desire to get our hands dirty and do stuff, right? They speak to that burning inside of us, that hunger, that thirst to get something done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The early Methodists talked about, uh, along with their Anglican brothers and sisters, uh, the things that we do in Christianity. They broke them up into categories of works of piety and works of mercy. And so works of piety were things like prayer and worship attendance and Holy Communion and reading Scripture and those kinds of things. And then works of mercy were these things that we do with our hands and our feet, right? The service, the way that we get our hands dirty for Christ in the world, the way that we offer ourselves to the world as an offering, uh, as one who belongs to God. So these two virtues today, uh, hunger and thirst for justice and mercy, are works of mercy. These are works of mercy that we partake in, that we participate in. And so Jesus, uh, as was read for us, he sees the crowds in Matthew 5, and he goes up on the mountain, he sits down with his disciples. It's reminding us that there's a new lawgiver in town, just like Moses went up on a mountain and delivered the law to the people. Now Jesus sits and delivers the new law, and he opens his mouth, and he says, Blessed are... Blessed are, blessed are. And so we get to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The desire for justice, the desire for righteousness, is a simultaneous desire to be right with God and to be right with other people. Uh, the definition of justice, really, at its most basic form, is to make sure that every person has their just do, that every person has what's coming to them, that we're not impeding that and that we help facilitate the things that is due properly to every human being. So being right with God, being right with others, so basic righteousness, justice, uh, it's used so many times in Scripture, it can, it can kind of move over into the holiness area. Uh, we look at service, we look at laying down our life, justice, righteousness, and we talked last week when we looked at the Beatitudes, I think there are, there are three things that we're invited to consider at least uh, in every one of them. And that is, uh, first of all, an affirmation. We see something we can affirm in every Beatitude. Okay, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. It seems strange and it's backwards, but we're going to stand with Jesus and say somehow blessed are those people who are mourning. There's an affirmation. There's also always an invitation. Blessed are the merciful is an invitation to us to be merciful. And then finally, it's so easy to see the parallels when you see each one of these Beatitudes that it's it's completely mirrored in the life of Jesus. We see Jesus enact every single one of these multiple times. And so we're trying to pick just one or two of those to kind of shed light on what these are. But for justice, for righteousness, the basic affirmation that I think Christ would remind us of, at least today, maybe for this time and place, is it is possible to experience resolution in our own hearts, in that battleground where all the turmoil is, wondering if we can ever be made right with God, 
if the pain and the guilt and the shame and the turmoil that we sometimes feel, if that can ever be resolved, there's like an internal justice crisis in every one of us. And I think the promise of this beatitude is that what we most desire is possible, that we can be satisfied in our search for justice within ourselves and relating to God. And the other affirmation is just that while we will not see perfect and complete justice until Christ comes and judges the living and the dead, when we participate in justice, we participate in inviting others to live in what God has provided and planned for them, that we participate in God's mission and we join him in work that he loves in the world. And so the invitation, I think, at least for me, it can be a couple of things. First of all, it may be a prayer for desire. Maybe the desire, you know, the hot rod link is just not running so hot. And it, we just need prayer for that desire to awaken in us to hunger and thirst again. You know, I was thinking this week about the things I hunger and thirst for. And honestly, yesterday, you know, I was like, man, the biggest thing on my calendar that I'm hungering and thirst for is to watch tech basketball. Like, that's not a bad thing. But if that's the thing that I most hunger and thirst for in life, you know, that's a miserable way to live because it will not satisfy me the way that I was created. So prayer for desire to dream again, to have a clean slate of the assurance of being a child of God who can survive the judgment with a smile because we've been gathered into God's family. And then an invitation just to keep doing all the stuff we know we've been called to do, right? to love our neighbor as ourselves, to get our hands dirty in the places that have been forsaken, those who don't know that God has created them with a good heart and a way to live in the world that's not just always, only, ever struggle. Where do we see justice or a hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness in the life of Christ? Uh, all over the place. Uh, I think even when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's hungering and thirsting for people to come back to God, to join for the lost sheep of Israel who have been scattered uh, all over for them to return and to come home, to be gathered back into the fold, to repent because good news is at hand. I think of Matthew 23, a little later on in the story, where Jesus just upbraids the Pharisees and says, woe to you guys. Y'all are like whitewashed tombs. You know, you make sure everything's right on the outside. All your public appearance stuff is great. But inside, you're just, you're dead. And like, well, where is the life? Where's the vibrancy? Where is your hunger and thirst for justice? He says, you've done the little things. You know, you've tied this and you've done that. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others just hits us right in the heart. And then I think of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Y'all remember that? Some of the best stories in the New Testament where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and people are just losing their minds. They're going, Jesus, you're breaking the law. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Don't you know that? And Jesus is like, hey, if you had a donkey and he fell in a hole on the Sabbath and he couldn't get out, are you just going to leave him in there till the next day? Of course not. You're going to get the donkey out. He's like, look at these people that are enslaved and in bondage and I'm here to set them free. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
And we're going to do it today so that they can experience Sabbath with the rest of everybody else. So the question with justice, with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I think, is what motivates us? What motivates us to serve? What motivates us to love others in ways that are very, very often difficult? And we know this when we get our hands dirty, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we work for justice in the world, it's very discouraging. Very discouraging. Very often people are not grateful at all. Uh, it, it's like children. like they, They're not thankful until like 20 years later. They wake up one day and they go, oh man, it's hard to keep food on the table. And then you call your mom and you're like, mom, thanks for all those years where I was ungrateful and you kept food on the table, you know, and you fed me. Uh, it's that way working in the kingdom of God for justice. Like people, they don't know usually that, that you've even worked or hungered and thirst for justice on their behalf. What motivates us, though, is this desire for justice, this desire to hunger and thirst for what God loves, to practice virtues that will not change us overnight, but they will change us surely and certainly over time. Gradually, we will be transformed into the image of Jesus. This is an economy of hunger and thirst. This is not an economy of scarcity. The work that we do in the kingdom of God, there are enough resources. What lacks sometimes is our hunger and our thirst. We sometimes think, gosh, I ought to just muster up a little more energy. I ought to just try a little harder. I ought to just be a little better. I ought to just feed one more person or help one more person. And I'm not doing enough. And if you're like me, you've gotten to a point where you've moved away from the economy of hunger and thirst. And it's time that we return to that place. And it's okay to consider, I want to be satisfied. We're created with a desire to be satisfied. This was convicting for me this week to say, do I really want to be satisfied in this way? And if so, then I should hunger and thirst for righteousness. For that's the promise, that we will be satisfied. So we've discussed justice, what motivates us to serve, hunger and thirst for righteousness, to perform justice. And now we turn to the second and final one, which I think measures the quality of our service. What is the quality of what we offer to the world? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This, this is a tough one. This is like when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask for forgiveness, and it's, uh, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who, has trespassed, who have trespassed against us. It's really tough work. All through the scriptures, though, uh, justice is accompanied by mercy. Here are a few passages that will be familiar to you. Psalm 85.10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Justice and mercy kiss each other. Justice and mercy. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that because justice without mercy is cruel, while mercy without justice is the mother of moral disillusion. Isn't that great? You can't have one without the other. Justice without mercy is just cruelty. And we know that's not the heart of God, but mercy without any justice, it, the complete moral fabric of the whole deal dissolves. So we have to hold them in tension, hand in hand. Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of us 
but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Mercy is a hard story to tell. It, and it's just hard to even think of stories. I mean, Les Mis, if you're a Les Mis fan, you know, that's a story of mercy for sure. But most of the stories that we know and love just don't really go that extra mile to tell that story. Most of the stories that I grew up loving were revenge stories, right? Clint Eastwood, you know, going out, he's going to go hunt down every single one of them by name. And by golly, they're going to get what's coming to them. It's the cowboy justice, you know. Uh, that's, that's the story that we love to tell. And you see that story recurring in the movies all the time. Like somebody does something bad to somebody, and the whole rest of the movie is them getting them back. And we finally get them. And, you know, it's a fun story. If justice were left up to us, that's, that's what we would do. And we would just celebrate that. And those are fun stories to watch and to read. But these mercy stories appear in the kingdom of God to be governing a lot more than we think. Mercy holds out for the possibility of redemption where I have closed the door. Now, mercy doesn't accept abuse. It's like forgiveness. Mercy is not weak. Mercy is strong. It doesn't accept abuse, and it does not come cheap. It's not just an ignoring of the bad things that happen. It's a forceful delivery of what we have received from God on the score of our own souls and our own lives, the mercy that we have received. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I should have written it down, and I don't know, and you all know it better than I do, um, but I, I have a, a guy, that, and he's really my dad's friend, but I grew up just admiring him, uh, and, and he uh, is now a federal judge, was appointed by President Bush, and he's, he, uh, he has on his desk a copy of the Shakespeare uh, of, of the, the poem about mercy, like the hymn to mercy. And it says, the quality of mercy is not strained. You know, it's just this great, like as much as it seems like a strain for us, the mercy that we have received from God is a well-washing, unbelievable mercy. And yet sometimes when I meter that out to others, I just squeeze the valve way down. Mercy is the story that we can choose instead of revenge. Um, it's a story of generosity. It's those that you see uh, who recognize what they have as gifts. I mean, just think of the generous people that you know. The people who give and give and give and give and give and the quality of their generosity does not seem strained. The quality of mercy is not strained. The story of mercy is at the heart of God's nature and his salvation plan. I think this is the affirmation here that this is the story that compels us and it sets us free from the cul-de-sac of revenge that we are so often tempted by. Uh, it's an invitation to consider our own desire to receive mercy from God. I know that revenge is the easiest story for me to tell. And if I'm honest, this is the fantasy that I see playing out in my head. This is how it's going to all be okay. It's just complete, you know, step by step of me doing the Clint Eastwood version where I just go through and clean house bit by bit. You know, if I ever see that guy again, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
And if this ever happens again, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And, you know, we just just kind of subtle, but we entertain those fantasies. And the life of Jesus, it just illustrates this story of mercy. You know, Jesus looks at the people, <clears throat> at Israel, his chosen people, and he mourns and he weeps. He has compassion for them because in Matthew's telling of the story, he sees them and he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, they were just they were just out there and they were they were great, but they didn't have anybody to care for them and lead them and bind up their wounds. And I never noticed this before, but right after Jesus says that, when he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, that's when in Matthew's gospel Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field, into the vineyard. And, you know, I always think, I always thought of this, like every evangelism conference you ever go to, this is the first PowerPoint slide. You know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of harvest to send laborers into the field, like to go out and witness for Jesus. And that's great. And that's true. And we should do that. And we know that the harvest is plentiful there. But I think Matthew's trying to tell us here in, G in the life of Jesus that part of the harvest being plentiful is something to grieve. Like there are people who need their wounds bound up. There are people who are afflicted, who don't know that God's mercy is for them. There are people who are estranged from communities and families, and there are people who are struggling. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we ask that God would send us and that he would send laborers into the field to bring mercy to the people that God so loves. Jesus has a whole series of stories about mercy. Think about Luke 15 alone. Three stories about mercy. There was a man who had two sons. Finally, on mercy, <clears throat> James, uh, you know, James, who's always just given us a hard time making sure we're not faith only people, right? And so, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus. You got to trust Jesus. You got to trust Jesus work. But that's that's work. That's not easy. And then, by the way, if you have faith and you don't have works, the faith is dead. And so here's what James says. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. What? There will be no mercy for those who have shown no mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. God really connects with me here. And that's a, that's a polite verb. I know that I want to receive mercy. And if we're honest, we all want to receive mercy. We know that where we would be without mercy, I know where I would be without mercy. I want to receive mercy. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that desire shows up in the way that I offer mercy to others. Martin Luther said, you know, 500 years ago, he said that at the last judgment on the last day, Jesus will cite a lack of mercy as the worst injury done to him, whatever we have done out of lack of mercy. 
the worst injury done to him. And I just wonder, you know, if we think about the things that we wonder, we speculate, you know, when I was a kid, it kind of changes the stages of life, the ways that we think we injure Jesus, you know, like cussing in church or uh, doing certain things, those certain taboo sins or things that we do, like, oh man, we really, we really wounded Jesus with that one. I, and I wonder if Luther's right. I wonder if this one, you know, if those other ones just pale in comparison to this one. Uh, a lack of mercy and a lack of justice as the worst injury done to Jesus. So as we consider the ways that we have been called to extend mercy, I want to close with an invitation to consider the story that we all know about Jesus' death and his resurrection. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, we really see these two wed perfectly, right? The psalmist said they kiss one another. In the cross, justice and mercy are wed together perfectly. They're grafted into that place. And because Jesus promises to judge the living and the dead, right? Like nobody gets off. The injustices that we see, uh, Jesus does not turn away from those. They will not go unpunished. But in the cross... Jesus takes some of that punishment. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. And he interrupts the story of revenge. And it goes back to his trial with Sanhedrin and with Pilate where human and divine justice said, you're guilty of capital punishment. And so there Jesus is receiving what the world said, this is justice. And the irony is that he turns that whole story upside down. And God's answer to that story of human injustice that we thought was justice, of killing Jesus on the cross, God's final answer to that happened three days later, where Jesus was raised from the dead. And life triumphs over death, and mercy triumphs over sin, and God wins over injustice through the mission of mercy. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that there's a grand vision for our happiness <clears throat> where you have created us perfectly uh, to live in the world in a happy, and holy, blessed way. I thank you for the saints among us who show us the way, who remind us that this way is possible. And I pray you continue to give us grace as we serve, as we're motivated to serve, and as we meter out justice according to your, excuse me, mercy, according to your mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.